Those videos are amazing. It's great to hear just testimony of people coming to faith, and we're thankful for that. Uh, if you would join me in Colossians chapter 2, we're going to be there for the sermon today. Chapter 2, verses 6 through 15. I'll read this for us. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. If you join me in prayer. Lord God, we ask that you would speak to us through your word today, that you would teach us of this great salvation that we have in Christ and the fullness of it that we have in him. And Lord, may you open our hearts to receive your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, since summer has finally arrived, I'm sure many of you are headed to the movie theater. And there's always that interesting thing that happens during the movie previews where you not only evaluate whether or not you think a movie is, looks good or interesting, but many times don't you see a movie preview and think, Haven't I seen this one before? Or better yet, right in the middle of the preview, you lean over to the person next to you and you go, I bet that guy's actually the bad guy. After you've watched enough TV or movies, you can kind of anticipate certain plot lines because they get reused often. And to me, there's one plot device that's always a winner and and to me will make any movie or TV show great. And it's this plot device where someone is striving, working really hard, and then they reach this place where their pride gets the best of them, and they lose confidence, and they're humbled in a huge way. And then what is the answer for their character? They must go back to their roots. Of course, the reason you stopped performing in that game is because you forgot why you loved baseball so much in the first place. You need to return to the streets, get your hands dirty so that you can overcome the obstacles in your life. And I think this plot device gets used so often because it touches something inside of us. Because if we feel let down by our current circumstance, often we'll look behind us and think, well, I started here, so why am I here instead of over there? And there's an aspect of this that's true in our spiritual life as well. We might find ourselves disillusioned or struggling or doubting or, or maybe caught in a particular sin pattern. And when we look back at the roots and the grounding of our faith... We can find the strength not to continue in the path that we are currently in, but instead to act as a course correction to get back on the one that we started on. 
And as we study this passage today, we, we will see that Paul is teaching the church that the key to a stable and steadfast faith is understanding the foundation of our faith. In verse 6 it says, As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. We're going to use this verse as kind of a format to understanding this entire passage. Paul desires for the church to walk in Christ in the same way that we received Christ. And to do that well, we must go back to our roots in order to move in the correct path. So we'll start with the first part of this phrase. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord. Paul wants us to begin in, in the, with the manner in which we received Christ. But I think we should even go back a step further because we need to say, who is this Christ that we have received? And this may be, seem arbitrary or elementary to you, but are you aware that we're not the only religion that proclaims Jesus? It, in Islam, Jesus, Jesus is proclaimed in Islam as a prophet, but not the incarnation or the Son of God. Jehovah's Witnesses proclaim that Jesus was created by God the Father, and that he is not equal with God. Mormons similarly teach that there are not three persons in the Godhead, but rather distinct beings. Also in Mormonism, Jesus was literally begotten by Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother, and that Jesus is God, but only exalted as such after his life on earth. And then they also add in the teaching that following Jesus' example, we too could be gods one day. And we could keep going too, because all religions have to deal with who Jesus is. But it is most important to know that though many proclaim Jesus, there is only one true Christ. And in this passage, Paul expects us to know who this Christ is that we proclaim. So although there is much we could say on this subject, I want to summarize here by the three-part title that we are given, Christ Jesus the Lord. And we'll start with the name Christ. And contrary to popular belief, this is not Jesus' last name. We confess that Jesus is the Christ the long-awaited, prophesied Messiah. He is the Savior of the world. It is in this statement that we say that Jesus was not just another teacher. He wasn't some anti-government revolutionary. He wasn't some crazed religious fanatic. He came with the mission to save God's people. We also proclaim the name Jesus. And it's this name that we can talk about our doctrine of incarnation. In verse 9, Paul writes this, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Our confession as Christians is that the Son, the second person of the Trinity, has always existed, and in the incarnation, which is that Christmas story that we all know and love so well, the second person added flesh onto his godly nature. In the, in the person of Jesus, the fullness of deity dwells. Jesus is not a partial God. He's not a sub-God or demi-God, but all the fullness of deity. And we can go a step further to affirm that in Jesus, we have the fullness of deity and the fullness of humanity. We have that so-called hypostatic union, the two natures of God and man fully represented in Jesus. This makes Jesus the only candidate to be our Savior. The other important distinction that we must make about Jesus is that he is Lord. Earlier in this series, we talked about the preeminence of Christ. We sing often of His glory, how He is deserving of all glory and all honor and all majesty. And because of these things, we submit our lives to His Lordship. He is ruler over us, and we honor Him 
by our submission. So who is this Christ? Jesus Christ the Lord, our Savior, our Mediator, and our God. So although there is much to be said about the person of Christ still, we have a working understanding by which we can continue on. Paul says that we have received Christ, and in verse 7 he expands by saying, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught. Just as you were taught. And although Paul expects the church to remember these crucial points of their doctrine, he doesn't just assume it. He goes on to remind them. Likewise, although many of you have been in church your whole life, the American church can sometimes tend towards jumping straight to the do's and don'ts of the faith, instead of building the foundation from our doctrine as to why we are to live in a certain way. Paul wants us to focus on the things that are already true about us because of what Christ has accomplished. Now let's start by looking in verse 11 through 13. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Paul here reminds believers of our participation in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And he reminds us through these images that were given to us. First, he talks about circumcision to show us how we have been set apart and chosen by God. And there's a difference between this circumcision and the one that was given under the Old Covenant. This is not a circumcision that is done by hands. This is a spiritual circumcision of the heart. Also, it's not a small portion of flesh that is taken off, but it is the whole body of flesh that is taken. This circumcision of Christ shows us the participation in Christ's death where our flesh is killed and is rendered powerless. And he then points us to our baptism, of which we are to remember the burial and resurrection of Christ. Those who are baptized today received a picture and an experience to remind them of their spiritual union with Christ. When the believer is taken under the water, we are given this reminder that we are united with Christ in his death and burial. And then as the person rises from the water, it reminds us of the new life that we have in Christ. Christ was raised from the dead, and if our faith is in him, then that's a present reality for us. And we said before the baptisms today that we do not believe that baptism saves you. It is not something Christians do to be saved, but something we do because we are saved. And in verse 13 he says, You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. I began by talking about how sometimes we look back in our faith and wonder how we got here, desiring to be at some other point. And some people think that baptism, or more specifically rebaptism, is the way to get yourself back on track. So we could see this endless loop of someone being baptized whenever they felt like they had strayed from their faith. Instead, we need a reminder of what baptism signifies and how forgiveness of our sins is something that we already have received if our faith is in Christ. Baptism is a picture and a reminder of what has already been done, not something to be done continually. And if you're here today and you have not been baptized, I want to encourage you, talk to me, talk to the other pastors, 
so that you may receive this sign, because it's a gift given for you that you can remember how you have been united to Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Next, if we look at the end of 13 and into 14, it says this, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. We've already talked about how we're united to Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And here we're given more detail as to why that was necessary. See, we have the sin that has to be dealt with. We have transgressed. We have gone against God's commands. And we've betrayed him countless times. And each of our sins racks up a debt legally because of the law. And it has to be paid. When Jesus went to the cross, he took our whole debt, all of our sins, past, present, and future, and nailed them to the cross. And we need to grasp the finality of this statement. The payment for our sins was made. Our debt has been canceled. There is no time when God is going to knock on our doors demanding payment for an outstanding bill. God has already thrown away the ledger. So what more could we pay? What more could we do? Paul wants us to have confidence in the work already finished by Christ. And furthermore, in verse 15, he writes that on the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, Christ, our Savior, has united us to him in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. He's canceled our debt, forgiven our sins. He's disarmed the rulers and authorities. And in this case, we're referring to Satan and demons. What charge could the powers of darkness bring against a believer in Christ? What power is left? Paul wants to remind believers of the reality of Satan and demons, but to remind us that they are powerless against Christ. When we think of Christ's death on the cross, we are told that this is the ultimate embarrassment for Satan. In his creation of lies, in his working of the betrayal of Christ by Judas, Satan thought that he had won, that he had the victory. But we stand today in the power of the resurrection with the cross forever standing as an open mockery of Satan. What charge could he bring against Christ's elect? It's all been finished. Look to the cross. Christ has triumphed over the darkness. And it all seems too wonderful. Like it's it's a little too good to be true. How how can all of this be included in Christ? I want to go back a few verses to a couple of lines that I skipped over. And I want you to see that this is Paul's idea all along. That we have received all of this in Christ. So let's look at verses 9 and 10. It says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. And we have already affirmed that the full deity resides in Jesus' body, in the incarnation. What then does it mean that we have been filled in him? That was the translation of the ESV. The NIV says, In Christ you have been brought to fullness. And the NASB says, you have been made complete in Christ. The use of the Greek word here that these different translations um, speak around it, it's, it's used to show us that we are filled up to the brim of Christ. We don't have Christ in part. Just as Jesus isn't only partly God, so we aren't only partly saved. 
We have the complete Christ. We have the full salvation. And furthermore, we have been filled with Him who is the head of all rule and authority. And this is why the law, our flesh, Satan and demons, they have no power, no authority, because we have been brought under Christ. I want to tell you about, there's this uh, great little Thai restaurant that used to be in my neighborhood. And the building's still there, but the restaurant isn't. It's this little shack down on Douglas Avenue near the VA hospital. And if you've lived here long enough, you've probably known this little restaurant to be one of many different restaurants. In fact, I think it's on its third iteration since being the Thai restaurant. And every time I drive past this place, I get a little bit sad because I remember the great food that was there. But every time the new restaurant goes in, there's this little glimmer of hope because maybe this is the one that finally breaks the spell of this building. But just as soon as it changes ownership, it seems to change again. This restaurant is like us before Christ. We are constantly trading our ownership to different philosophies, different religions, submitting ourselves to the authority of various idols. And when we put our faith in Christ, we change our name for the last time. No longer are we servants of the flesh. No longer are we servants of men. No longer are we servants of Satan and demons. This body is under new management. And we can say that with confidence because we have the fullness of that salvation up front. We are not waiting on new revelation. We're not holding out for the next experience or idea. We have been brought fully under the authority of Christ, and we receive full benefits of being in Him. Our faith relies not in our ability to change ourselves, but in our trusting of what has already changed about us. We don't need to have a faith that relies on the best trends or new ideas about Christianity. Paul tells us that what we need is some good old-fashioned doctrine, the great theological truths that we have received. These truths are what you are rooted and built up in, and these truths established your faith. And if you are a believer in Christ, you are to hold tightly to these truths. So if you are disillusioned, if you're discouraged in your faith today, my prayer this week is that you would look newly upon what has already been accomplished. Would you consider again what is already true about you? And then lean on that. Christ's finished work is our firm foundation that we lean on, that we rest on. And this is what allows us to weather the storms of life. Whatever comes our way, we rest assured in the finished work of Christ. And if you're here and you're not a believer in Christ, I want you to know what you are missing but I also want you to know what is freely offered to you. If you do not trust in Christ for salvation, you are still stuck in your sins. You will continue either bouncing back between whatever philosophy you deem to be true at the time, or you're going to continue submitting to a false religion, which is, in the end, just submission to Satan and demons. Only Christ can free you from your sins and your false worship. And he freely offers you the full salvation that we have in him. And if you do not know Christ in this way, please talk to me. I want to introduce you to him today. We've talked extensively on the manner in which we received Christ. But how are we expected to use that information? Just as Paul wrote, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. 
Since we know this Jesus that we have received, now we walk as though those things are true. And I'm going to split this in two categories, two manners in which we walk. The first is going to be defense against lies, and the second being mature Christian living. Let's take a look at verse 8. Paul says this, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Now that we all know this Christ whom we received, we have the correct tools to battle against deception. We are all subject to what Paul is talking about here because we live our lives in the world. We're constantly bombarded with other philosophies, deceitful schemes, human traditions, and other spiritual matters. We see it in advertising, we see it in the news, with people at work, people in our own families. Not only that, but we must recognize that Paul is giving a warning to the church about people coming into the church. And if we are not constantly going back to the core of our belief, then it's so easy for the people in the church to rely upon their own tradition. The church can quickly become more on the defense of social gatherings than the gospel itself. We could easily become a church that knows more about what we should wear, who we should vote for, and what is socially acceptable than the gospel itself. We have have been given this charge that we are to measure our philosophies and our traditions against what the Bible says to be true about Christ. And if we're not careful, we will replace this is what the Bible says with this is the way we do things around here. Paul gives us our theology of Christ and the theology of how we received Christ so that we can defend ourselves against lies, both in the culture around us and also how those deceitful schemes find their way into the church. And this sermon is not exempt from that same scrutiny. These songs that we sing aren't exempt from that scrutiny. The charge is given to all of us as the church to make sure we know our scripture so we can defend ourselves against lies. The other aspect of walking in Christ is really the direction that we walk. We must know the end goal if we're really trying to work our way there. And here, the end goal is mature Christian living. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 13 and 14, Paul is writing about how the church has been given gifts to build one another up to this end, until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. And this is right in line with what he's saying here in Colossians. We are not to be people that are easily deceived and led astray by schemes and philosophies. Instead, we are to grow up into Christ. We don't stay as infants We do not stay as children, but instead our goal is to grow and to keep growing until Christ returns or calls us home to him. The emphasis here in Colossians is that we do not not walk separate from Christ, but in him. All of our salvation is found in him, and now we walk in him. Not only are we going to find our growth in him, but it's going to be in the same manner in which we received Christ. As you received him, so walk in him. And let's remember the salvation that we received in Christ. Was it after we fixed ourselves up? Was it after we tried really hard to be good people? Did you pay for your sins to be given, forgiven? 
No. It was completely God's grace given to us, which we did not deserve in the slightest. So why would we expect our Christian growth to come in any other way? Paul says to the church in Galatians 3.3, Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? After you received Christ, are you trying by your own power to grow without Him? We mature in Christ, not apart from Christ. This passage that we've been studying today sets us up for the rest of the book of Colossians, where we have a lot more practical topics about our everyday holy living. And Paul often sets up his letters in this way, where he uses the front half to talk about who we are in Christ, the true realities about us, and then how we walk that out in the second half. And if we jump straight to chapters 3 and 4, we might miss what actually empowers us to live those things out, and that's that grace that we received in Christ. The grace that saved us is the same grace that sanctifies us. And sanctify is just a fancy word for growing and becoming more holy. And if we jump to the practical statements of how to be Christian parents, what it means to be a husband and a wife, how to love one another, and we forget this grace, well, we might be tempted to believe that acting in these ways, that we would be keeping ourselves in God's grace. And at worst, this could become self-righteousness where we hold others to these invisible standards by thinking, well, I did these things right, so now I expect you to get in line and do them yourself. We mature in Christ, not apart from Christ. We continue growing in the same grace which we received from him. And I have an example of what this looks like, and I will end with this today. When I was younger, I grew really fast. And so I was frequently wearing clothes that were a little bit too big for me. And naturally, since I was young, I didn't pick out my own clothes. They were purchased for me. So I'd go to try on this shirt that my mom got me, and I'd come out and show her, and her response was, well, it's a little big, but you'll grow into it. That shirt wasn't any less mine than when I had grown into it and it fit a little bit better. This life we have received in Christ is already ours. We have the fullness of Christ, and we have been made complete in him. We are called to walk in him, not to make it true, but because it is true. Christian, the clothes that you used to wear do not fit you anymore. Christ has clothed you in his righteousness and in his holiness. These clothes are already yours, and it might not fit great right now, but the more you mature, you'll grow into it. Would you join me in prayer? Lord God, I thank you for these wonderful truths that we have from you today. It's wonderful truths about the grace that we have received in you, and I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit that we would grow and mature in this same grace, that we would learn to walk in the ways that you have laid out for us, God. May you be glorified in our growth and in our maturity and help us. We need your grace. We cannot do this by the flesh, Lord. This is all to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.